Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I've got an extra special guest, Ben Puddle. Ben is the co-founder of TMB Capital. They're an independent private equity firm specializing in high-quality, value-driven investments in operational real estate and asset-backed operating businesses. They've built a core portfolio of leisure and hospitality, affordable housing, secondary healthcare, as well as public sector assets. So welcome, Ben. Thanks so much for giving up your time to come on the show. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Well, I know I've been trying to get you on, on here for a while, actually, because the whole, the whole kind of broadcast premise was always all about asset-backed businesses, which is like, and you guys do exactly what it says in the tin, doesn't it? So I've been trying to get you in, but I know you've been extremely busy and we'll probably go into some detail about what, what it is that you've, you've been up to. But before we do that, could you just give us a quick bit of background to yourself and also to TMB Capital and uh, what you did prior to that, why you set it up, etc. Yeah, sure. Um, I was an investment banker for the best part of 10 years, I guess. So I was a Citigroup, um, held a number of different roles there, was kind of always interested in, and this sounds stupid, but it's the way I sort of describe it, in kind of building something in my hands. So a lot of sort of pen pushing and a lot of sort of spreadsheets and what have you, but you never actually really got into it, right? And so I started doing a bit of sort of student here and there, HMOs. We then moved into some sort of PBSA and was sort of dabbling with it. At the same time, I met my co-founder, um, Edward, or, or Teddy, as you know, um, at Citigroup in probably 07. And so we've known each other a long time. He was there for four years and went off and held a number of roles with the likes of a TPG and a few other sort of P funds and what have you. So we sort of got together and said, look, you know, do you want to do something together, right? Because we've both been working for, for sort of big firms and big American firms for whatever it was, 10 to 12 years at that point and decided we just wanted to do something else. So we, bizarrely, we had a phone call from a chap in, uh, in Nottingham who owned a couple of residential holiday parks in Scotland. And he said to us, look, if you refinance my business, then I'll, I'll give you half of it. At the time, I think we were looking at retail and what have you, which we, and this is 2016, right? So we decided to step that pretty well. And we said, okay, so we ended up going up to Scotland and we stayed in this aluminium sort of tin can in the middle of winter and what have you and thought, what the hell are we doing? But we basically ended up doing the refinance. He gave us half the business and we started to think, well, this is bloody interesting, this whole caravan malarkey. We should probably go and raise some capital and, and sort of scale it and, and do something with it, right? I mean, the sector was, was ripe for it. So we went and, you know, knocked on a whole host of doors, as you do. You know, we got turned down by, you know, almost all of them. And then decided that the best way in which we were going to get access to that world of, you know, sort of managed accounts or, or big investors and what have you, was with a JV partner that was already working with them and could ultimately open the door for us, which is, which is what we did. So, you know, we were value-add for them in terms of we had a lot of technical skills and M&A and, you know, a whole host of stuff. And they had track record uh, and development skills and, and combined it sort of made sense to go and do that so the honest answer is we we got pretty lucky i guess in terms of we fell into caravans as, as i was about to say as everyone does but no one really does that you know you fall into something don't you and then we got lucky in terms of relationships that we sort of built up over a number of years and we introduced to capital at the right time and that type of sort of thing and then we partnered up with a, with a couple of other guys um who i'd known for a long time one i believe when i was at prep school with another chap i was at, at sort of um, secondary school with and it was just a really good fit. So we just got a really good team, you know. So we've got private equity, we've got corporate finance, investment banking, credit, tax, you know, a whole host of just skills that, that we can sort of bring, I guess, to an asset. And then we started looking at other things. So we started looking at the healthcare sector. We started looking at student social housing, you name it. And it really just sort of grew from there. And we sort of moved, I guess, from from that sort of single sponsor in terms of Angela Gordon. We're now working with like patrons and family offices and, so public sector, so the counterparties, which is which is pretty exciting. It just just snowballed, really. I think we now we now run about four hundred and fifty million in terms of assets on the management. Probably a bit more if you look at portfolio companies as well. But broadly speaking, it gives you an idea. And in the last 
four or five years, we've done about 700 million transactions. I'm hoping that we can you know, cross that sort of the magic sort of billion threshold over the next three to six months with a fair wind. But we're, we're pretty defensive. If you look at everything we're investing in, I have to say we thought that the crash in inverted commas was, was coming a bit sooner, which is why we positioned ourselves in parks, in care, and social, and student, etc. But yeah, that's a sort of potted history of us, I guess. And so what was it that made you kind of go from Citigroup partnering up with Teddy to focus on asset-backed businesses rather than, I don't know, any other type of investment? Well, I think that it's a good question, right? I mean, you know, ultimately, when, when I was at Citigroup and started doing some, some sort of personal investing and helping out a friend at the time, actually, who asked me to sit on the board and just add some, some credibility to his sort of startup, started investing in students. So as I said, it started in HMOs and it moved into PBSA. And so that kind of asset backed, you know, sort of operating real estate was kind of always there. And I just liked that mix of, of having the real estate angle and then having the operating business over the top. And I think the two so important in terms of how they work together but equally it gives you so much downside protection you know if you look at asset light businesses you can go to zero yeah, at least yeah. Asset backed, there's a little bit of protection there which i think you're like you're never going to have your or you know you're rarely going to have your knockout returns at sort of three four five six seven x and what have you but equally you're not going to lose everything so we kind of just like that risk adjusting return i guess yeah definitely and uh, i mean on on sort of the if you look up TMB Capital, you describe yourselves as cyclical investors. And uh, recently you've exited from a business that you founded only four years ago. And obviously that's testament to that. Do you want to run us through what your thought process was behind kind of ARIA Resorts when you founded it and why you felt that there was an opportunity in that? Obviously, I can, you've kind of touched on it with the... I'll, I'll give you an idea. I mean, so... I say we're cyclical investors, right? We don't necessarily have a particular mandate or, or sector specialism. What we do is look at, I guess, um, what stage of the business cycle we're in and where we think the market's going to go over the next you know, three, five, even seven years, right? Because that's how long our investments take to mature. Yeah. And what do we think is going to happen in that? You know, we are, broadly, we agree with the whole cyclical yeah, so cycle theory in terms of 14 years ultimately goes up, then goes down a tiny bit, races and sort of falls off the cliff. That's played out since, you know, God was a boy. I think apart from the Second World War, actually, was the only time it hasn't, if memory serves me correct, when the government was just pumping you know, so much money. Into so do you think there's going to be a likeness to that now due to kind of all the pumping of money going in? The similarities there. I think we're in the biggest asset bubble the world's ever seen, quite frankly, is the honest answer. But and that's one of the reasons why we wanted to invest in in holiday parks and caravan parks. You know, we did a lot of regression testing through 08, 09, and you know, top line revenues grew at the, the sort of top companies through that, really due to a sort of mixed model. And and you know, to give you, I guess, our investment thesis around that, right? So we, we made our first investment in 2017. It was a pretty you know, sort of backwater in terms of investment. There was a couple of lower mid-market, a couple of mid-market P houses. Broadly speaking, it was sort of mum and pops. So we, we've we seen that kind of continued, I guess, influx of institutional capital that we've expected, given the relative attractiveness of the sector, the, the Blackstones, the CBCs, the, the big boys are coming in. Right? Even Lloyds now as well, isn't it? Absolutely. So it's pretty unique in its offering. So, you know, Holiday Park's, offer true diversification, especially for someone like an Angelo Gordon who was a sponsor on that deal. And the reason for that is that, you know, a lot of their investments and real estate investments might be naturally correlated to the market. Holiday parks aren't, right? If you look at, you know, in terms of a recession or downturn, you don't sell as many holiday homes, but people aren't traveling abroad as much. So you have that balanced model where people then take holidays in the UK. So obviously you were thinking about this all before there was any whiff of covid on the horizon or anything like that too yeah, well, to be honest it was it was more a brexit hedge at that point if i'm honest with you um rather than rather than sort of covid hedging that you know no one saw that coming but you know the, the business model is, is is resilient there's significant growth opportunities cyclical protections you've got you know important you've got scalability there's three thousand parks i mean the top five operators owned less than 100 at one point so we thought we could hoover it up uh, and sort of you know do that barn build strategy a lot more difficult i tell you than, than it is on paper when you actually go and knock on the door there's mum and pops to, to sell it's been family owned for 70 years and then there were um the whole host of cyclical and sort of structural drivers as well so 
you know, there was long-term structural growth in our key demographics, the over 55s. You've got sort of relative affordability of caravan holiday homes versus versus second homes, which mm-hmm. means that, you know, people naturally, you know, sort of migrate towards those. And then you've got a good availability of funding, right? So you've seen continued house price growth for the last 10 years, the last decade. So people can take equity out of the homes and buy them. Um, cheap consumer finance. There's been a decline in household savings since 2009, but, you know, the growth in availability funding has offset that. Yeah. yeah, well, and the cheapness of, of the funding as well with rates as well. So I guess, I guess that's that, that's had a big big play on it too. Yeah, huge. You, know, you had stable, stable GDP, you had improving consumer confidence, you had stable property transactions, which is important. We did a load of um, regression testing against sort of property transactions. And, yeah, it was a market that was growing at sort of 3 to 6% a year at the time, but it was all at the top end. You know, where, they, where you had a professional managers and the professional teams, and the the big portfolio companies that's where it was growing the mum and the pops and what have you were taking capital out of their business they were capital starved they'd be under invested and they weren't growing at that rate so you had this kind of huge disconnect that we thought if we go in to put a proper you know institutional umbrella over it we can grow something that is um yeah just a lot a lot sort of more resilient and it can grow a lot faster and then and then look you had a whole host of working capital opportunities which i think is really you know overlooked in terms of operating businesses you know if you think that you get all your cash up front you know because you've got credit from suppliers so actually sell a home before you have to pay for it yeah. you get your lettings monies up front you get your annual site fees up front you're ultimately using your customers to lever your own growth mm-hmm. um, and you know the, the best example of that in the world is amazon right and you've seen kind of what happened to that so i think that that is really important it was just a just a really good opportunity at the right time. You know, we got lucky like like anyone would in terms of timing. I thought we were bloody unlucky when COVID hit, if I'm honest with you. We're just starting to mature. And Hi, everyone. Sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to quickly tell you about the property business retreat that I'm hosting with Adam Lawrence and Sue Sims between the 9th and the 16th of October. As you listen to the broadcast or see any of the posts that myself and Adam do, you'll know that we're fairly detail-orientated and the retreat will be no different. It's centred around workshops that are specific to your personal property business and investments. It's not just a case of listening to people speak. There's a fair bit of work involved and we take a holistic look at the property business and highlight any potential risk areas, as well as making sure it's built on solid foundations from which to grow sustainably. It's for people with existing businesses or portfolios. And some of the workshops that we do include analysis of what is a good investment specific to you strategic planning, tax structure and net returns, diversification, hedging or insuring, trends specific to location, use class and tenant type, where your property assets fit into your total investment portfolio and project management. You will leave with a very in-depth strategic plan to work from going forward and there will be progress updates every month for the following six months after the week away. It's a really fun week and if you are interested, please contact me, rod at incomethroughproperty.co.uk, and you can find that email in the show notes. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. We shut down, we had to pump a load of money in um, and sort of create a load of liquidity for the business to, to survive that. But coming out of it, obviously, the sort of tailwinds and what have you were, were pretty significant. It allowed us to, to sort of achieve an, an exit probably a little bit earlier. You know, in terms of, yeah, you know, we were very lucky as well that the big money came into the market, you know, the Blackstones, the CBCs, et cetera, and decided to do their own buy and build of larger portfolio companies. They're obviously looking at yield compression. They can pay early. You know, you, we got a, we probably got tomorrow's price today, um, which is always great in this market, right? Absolutely. So there's a few follow-up questions on for what you've said there. Kind of, you, you were talking about kind of the regression models you use, things like that. Uh, the business cycle. So firstly, what what metrics would you look at in order to kind of, in order to judge where in the cycle some of the asset classes that you you would be looking to invest in? So what, what would be some examples of things that you would like to be checking on? So, I mean, it's a really good question. You know, I, I probably wouldn't say that I was intelligent enough to, to sort of read the market like that. But I remember when, when I sort of started out, I did a law degree and that was always fantastic because it allowed me to, to sort of read a contract and you know legalese is just totally baffling right otherwise 
but I did my CFA when I was at when I was at Citigroup, so I was a chartered financial analyst. And someone once told me it was the best piece of advice they ever gave me. And he said the reason you do CFA is so you read the Financial Times to understand what the hell is going on, um, and you understand what the acronyms are, right? And and to be honest, the, the back page of the FT generally gives me kind of the advice that, that I can sort of consume. So um, yeah. the long view is something I read every weekend. Uh, but look, you know, so jokes aside, I mean. I don't think it's difficult, right, to, to sort of look at some of the key things. You know, the stock market's always a slight leader. Um, it just feels so overheated and valuations and that type of sort of thing. I think there are some indications from last time. If you look at the residential market, I mean, it's gone up so far, so quickly. You know, you just history's repeating itself, I think, in terms of 0809. You know, you look at relative affordabilities in terms of national wage versus average house price in terms of how that's sort of stretching, you know, at sort of 10 times or wherever it is at the moment, right? It's, Do you not think that that's, if people were buying in cash, then that would be more relevant? But obviously with mortgage levels, you've got longer mortgage terms. So your typical first-time buyers now, 35, even 40-year terms, interest rates are much lower than they were. Do you think that's having a, a, a big effect on it? Yeah, of course. I mean, you look at any financial model, right? And as soon as the cost of debt comes up, right, the equity price goes up. I mean, yeah. that's... Yeah. So I think that, you know, the, I think, as I said at the start, right, I generally think we're in the biggest asset bubble that the world has ever seen. I think there's probably a two-year run. So, so, what, so what would you say are defensive assets that you would be, be looking at for that? So look, we, things like things that don't correlate hugely with the market, right? Broadly speaking, holiday parks, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in care homes. Yep. Uh, care sector and you know there's a big announcement today about how the government's going to fund that going forward we're in social and affordable housing which we can get onto in a minute uh, student you know ultimately every year you get a new influx of students and that's broadly the sort of same and that's showed resiliency in sort of previous downturns and things and that's where we're positioned now i, I wouldn't go and buy five-star hotels at the moment i probably would in in you know coming out the back end of you know the next crash whenever it's going to be and what have you but so yeah, we, we we kind of sort of position ourselves to to sort of catch the business cycle if if we can do right, and, and obviously no one can second guess it. And how would you kind of differentiate them between? I suppose you've already talked about asset classes, but then if we're talking about kind of just real estate, for example, you you'd be able to differentiate in the UK between location, the asset class, and ultimately the tenant type too. Do you think there is? a big kind of difference throughout the UK in terms of opportunities of different, say, locations? Or do you think the kind of market is moving all in, in, in one go? Or in one- I think it is, it, is, it is moving in one go, right? And I think that you're seeing the spreads between kind of sort of prime and secondary or tertiary assets get smaller, which, which is always dangerous. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, everything in the world, you know, it's location, location, location. Um, mm. It, it just is right, and I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an idea of how we kind of view location and what have you. Okay. So if you look at the care sector uh, and, and sort of care homes. We're very much looking at the, the mid market. Now, the reason that we're doing that is that the lower end of the market is just very very difficult. It, it's sort of mum and pop. It's twenty thirty bed care homes. It's family run. You can't make a you know a real sort of profit on that. The mid market's at sort of probably eleven hundred pounds a week. Um, which is expensive, right? From a sort of private pay perspective, the top end's about two thousand. Right, the signatures and that type of sort of thing in the world. Yeah. We like the mid market because ultimately you're buying at below replacement cost. Yeah. You know, so if I was to buy land and build a care home at the moment, I have to charge two thousand a week to make it economically viable. Which means that no one's building in the mid market. Yeah. Now you've it's, got it's a barrier to entry. So, right. So you've got a population that is expanding has increased care needs. And, you know, we will then look at, okay, where's a particular care home? We'll then look at all the planning permissions and everything around it. And we'll look at demand and, and sort of supply and say, does this make sense? Is it always going to be full going forward? The answer is yes, we'll ultimately buy it. If it's no, we won't. So that, that does have a, a huge sort of impact. And we do look at that a lot. Your data is becoming so much more important in terms of investing. And there are a whole host of tools that are, you know, at our disposal now, which, which weren't even five years ago. Yeah, uh, in looking at you know, demographics and trends and transaction values and what have you. Do, do you think? Do you think just on that point that if we had all those tools available, that maybe two thousand and eight wouldn't have, have have obviously been so such a big impact for a lot of um, a lot of these financial firms? 
not not really no i mean look 2008 was was just a crash you know if you look back through history there's there's always a crash there's always just a different cause you know know, whatever it is and whatever comes next you're not going to predict but you can predict as as night becomes day that there is going to be a crash uh it's more difficult to pick when but but we work over longer time periods right so if our investment horizon is you know we'll underwrite five years but we need to probably say we can go to seven I think with some comfort, I can probably sit here and say, I think within the next five to seven years, there's going to be a crash. So therefore, I need to be positioned to to, to do that. Um, and that's just probably easier than saying we're going to pick it on this particular date. And this is yeah, what's going yeah. to definitely. But yeah, I mean, the other thing is, you know, there's so many different things over the past 10 years that, that should have caused a crash. I mean, you remember the Greek crisis, right? And yeah, yeah. Almost things like that. Um, you know, it just hasn't. And just it's just weird that that fourteen year cycle repeats itself throughout history in every asset class and every market and every country in the world. It's just a bizarre quirk in the matrix that that's what it is, and, and we we just adhere to, to that because it's been proven time and time again. And then, I mean, in, in terms of kind of your your thesis, you, you kind of spoke about not being tied down to a specific mandate or strategy. How does that not only kind of enable you to make good investments but also operate many of these businesses which you do which look fairly intense how do you manage to do that without spreading yourself too thin and being seen by your investors as a jack of all trades and master of none is it purely down to the results that you get so the returns or do you believe that there's a particular science to embedding a really great management team that can lead operational success in kind of almost any any business or any asset-backed business? I think the single most important thing, without a shadow of a doubt, is talent and is the management team. You know, you can have you can be in the best market with the best real estate, the, the sort of perfect storm in terms of your sort of ability to, to sort of perform, but if you haven't got the right management team, you're not going to do it. And, and you know, we, we've got it right, we've got it wrong. We, we've kind of sort of learned a lot. And we will go into, I, I guess, either a sector or an investment or an opportunity, looking at both the market and the real estate and the management team at the same time. And ultimately, back management teams. So you could have the most amazing opportunity, but if we don't believe in the management team, we won't do it. Yeah. I think that if you look at, I guess, the real estate versus management team, if you've got a great management team, you will get the best out of poor real estate. If you've got... Um, a poor management team, you're never going to get the best out of um, you know decent real estate. So, you know, I read I read a really interesting piece by McKinsey about two three months ago, which I shared internally with our, our social business, which we're looking to scale quite a lot. And it said that talent versus, and this is this is someone who is talented that you're going to hire for a particular role, can outperform an underachiever by up to ten times. Wow. you think about that in, in terms of like you know, driving over time, yeah. over time it's you know a five-year whole period that's a, that's a that's a pretty decent return so it's all about the management team it's all about having the right operating partners in in the right sort of sectors the right the right time in their careers as well and the right experience and and backing them and how i mean have you got any tips for people listening about the best way in which to kind of create i suppose one that culture where people where the where you're going to attract the right talent, but also in order to go out finding it. Because I think that's one thing that businesses do really, really struggle with. Yeah, I think culture is so, so important. It really is, and it's such a truism that it comes from the top. How would you, how would I go about finding teams? We've been, we've been very lucky in terms of we've sort of met the right people at the right time and, 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 and then done business with them. And you've obviously got to be in business to, to do business, they say. But we also spend a lot, a lot of time talking to headhunters, talking to the market, making sure that we, we're doing a lot of networking. We know, you know who's operating the businesses around us and in our sort of sphere within particular sectors we operate. So I kind of sort of pride ourselves on that. You know, if you look at my team as as well, or, or sort of our team, right, as, as obviously we're sort of, we're sort of partners, we've got some very smart guys there as well that with a lot of experience in, in terms of looking at management teams and boards and what have you. In fact, Teddy, as you know, is, is, is currently at Oxford doing his sort of MBA and what have you. You know, Henry has got a, a wealth of experience, right, and we probably draw on him more, more than anyone else. And Alex, obviously, is 
super bright. So that that team as well, and we sort of bounce off each other and have ideas about various team members and what have you. But you've also not got to be afraid to replace the team. If it's not the right one, you need to replace it immediately um, and get a team that can do it. And I mean, you've kind of, I suppose you've answered this kind of, but but how much would you say your returns are based on investing into an asset class whose market is kind of looking good for future capital growth versus, like you've just mentioned, sweating that asset and, and having a management team getting the most out of that asset? How much would you realistically think? Because you're, you're obviously targeting both of those things. What would you say is, makes a bigger difference to the, to the uh, bottom line? I would say the management team make an 80% difference and your investment in the real estate is 20%. Wow, okay. Probably a ratio of, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot bigger than I was expecting. Um, so what have been the biggest challenges in terms of scaling up your business um, and like the investment business as a whole? Obviously, within that, you've got all these smaller operating businesses that are incredibly kind of time and, and uh, effort intensive, I guess. But what about the... I guess for both both of those, what's the hardest thing in in uh, scaling up over quite a short term some of those operating businesses and then also the investment business as a whole? Yeah, so we, we've got it's a bit of a dual model. So what we usually do is we will invest first in a sector and we'll, we'll take over a smaller business and, and get under the skin and, and really understand it. We did that with, with Caravan Park, you know. Yeah. We did that with care homes. Uh, we've done that with social housing. And then once we've got under the skin of the business, we'll go and raise institutional capital to expand it. So we always have that, um, I guess, that sort of interim phase whereby we own the company's own balance sheets and we're perhaps starting to learn them. Sorry. So, so you're, you're essentially proving the concept to yourselves and potential investors and then, and then scaling it yeah, up. And, and that, that, that is dangerous because you're in a smaller business that perhaps doesn't have professional managers. It take up a lot more of your time and, and that can be a sort of a risk moment. Generally speaking, we'll also finance that more aggressively than we would do with an institutional party. We just will use long income, debt, stretch debt, et cetera, to get in to, to kind of maximize you know, our equity, which again puts more risk into that. You know, if you look at institutional capital at the moment, you're looking at 50, 60% leverage. We might go higher than that. We might go you know, 80 or even 90 in some, some instances. You'd like to pull it back pretty quickly, but just to, to get in. So that's always very risky and takes up a lot of time. In terms of scaling it, I think that it's difficult to find people. You know, we would like to expand our team and grow it. We haven't yet found someone that we've tried inevitably, but we haven't yet found someone who is, or we're able to kind of sort of devolve a lot of our responsibilities to in that sort of way. You know, we run our own strategies um, to a lot of degrees. So everything from you know, origination right through to exit and everything in between from M&A and debt and operational management, we'll do that all ourselves in a particular strategy. So I would... got quite a, You've got quite a lean management team for that, considering everything that you're in. You're in sort of very different businesses, but also a lot of them. I think the caravan parks, how, how many do you have? Sort of 14 or 16 of them or something by the end? Yeah, 14, yeah, we had. It was, it was a big old business. Yeah. I mean, you know, turnover was nearly 100 million a year. You know, business will do... 25 26 million EBITDA this year so it's a sizable business you know ultimately we would sort of sit or, or I was sitting on the board at that point and we had the most fantastic management team you can you can imagine who, who really went and, and sort of achieved but, but then you've got to do that for care homes you've got to do that for the affordable housing you've got to, and, and even within those you've got then smaller businesses making up the whole it must be very <laughs> difficult to kind of have that I suppose is it a, a bottom-down approach or top-down approach even um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, that's what I mean by running our strategy. So in the social, you know, Teddy partner will sit and he'll, he'll be in charge of that, right? Well, Alex has looked at our sort of care strategies and what have you. Henry works across all of them, which, which makes it, one gives him kind of a great view right across all of the businesses. Um, two, it makes him probably the busiest person in the office, but that's out doubt, you know, Henry well. But yeah, so we kind of do that. And, and hence, I'd like to have more people you know, over time that can then run their own strategies and expand the business because it is quite sort of labour intensive. You know, we, we broadly speaking look at whole co-investment. You know, I think there's a big play in net lease at the moment it is the honest answer, which would obviously be a lot less intensive from the sort of asset management perspective because I think that financing availability is pretty strong in that. But we're starting to move away, I guess, from 
your sort of you know beds and consumer driven more into that where we want to be is more into that sort of public sector space i think and you know creating kind of real sort of social purpose it, it's great having hotel rooms it's great doing x y and z but if you can invest and drive social purpose that's really i guess where we want to be how do you measure social purpose how do you measure impact then for something like that i don't think we necessarily need to measure it right i think that you know if you look let's take social housing right because it's a kind of, sort of key buzz at the moment yeah a lot of the big funds that are coming in investing in social housing are actually buying existing stock yeah. we want to do is get out there and create new stock yeah. right there's such a there's such demand for new stock and there's such little capital on a relative perspective going into it. We want to be creating new stock. And I think that's how we kind of measure social purpose. It's creating something out of nothing, you know, using private sector um, funds to solve a public sector problem. And I think that that's really where we want to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, we I spoke to Julian Evans on, on the show a couple of episodes ago, who's kind of a, very high up in, in in the healthcare sector and and he was basically saying that there is so much underinvestment into the sector on getting it up to scratch and when you kind of compare us to the rest of the sort of G7 G8 nations we're woefully behind in new investment into into those and also the capital intensive nature of repurposing or 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 improving existing stock is is difficult to get investment for. So there's, there's clearly a massive, massive demand for it at the moment. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'd like to see our, our, our public sector bodies become a lot more commercial as well. well um, I think everyone would, wouldn't they? There's such a, there's probably the greatest opportunity of our lives. You know, if you look at, if you look at where UK public debt is, is trading, right. Especially from an inflation perspective, and you're looking at sort of negative cost of capital. Yeah. Think about us as a private equity firm if we had negative cost of capital, right? You could invest and in, in what have you into, you know, operational real estate, secondary care, social, et cetera. Now is the time to do it. You know, even if you think that, you know, investing in, let's say, social, and let's, let's say you even get a... They might even finish HS2. I know, but, you know, for 4 or 5%, right? Yeah. But your you cost of capital is negative. You're actually making a profit then on your investment as well. It just, it just feels like it's reasonably frustrating that uh, I guess the sort of you know UK government has the opportunity and the public sector bodies, there be the sort of councils and what have you, and it just almost needs the sort of a bit of faith in the private sector that that we're not there to to sort of rip you off. We want to come in and, and sort of show you some of the tools that, that that we use on our side to drive returns and. And do that for the state. And I think it's such a big opportunity to solve so many problems if we can just start just think a little bit more. Give yeah, some of those things a new lease of life with a bit of capital going into them. Absolutely. So you, you mentioned kind of social housing as being sort of a bit of a buzzword at the moment. It's certainly on trend and it's, it's, it's attracting an awful lot of capital. Kind of, I suppose, it's being seen as an alternative to typical fixed income assets. How far do you think that trend has to go? And and what maybe risk do you see on the horizon for that, if any? Yeah, I mean, social housing covers a whole plethora of things, right? You've got local housing allowance, you've got temporary accommodation, you've got key worker, shared ownership. There's a, there's a whole sort of host of stuff. So each of them have different characteristics, per se. I think that the big problem we have, if I'm honest with you, is you know, invested private capital, right, needs to have faith in to, to sort of make investments. And the government botched it a few years ago, right, by, by dropping the, the LHA rent, which yep. had kind of sort of always gone up. And, and therefore it, it made people think, oh, Jesus Christ, can we invest in this long term? Well, it went up by 13%. I can't remember if it was last April or the, the April before on average. And actually, when you start to stress test a private portfolio against an LHA rate, in certain areas, you can see when once that LHA rate had gone up, that there's really not much kind of wiggle room. It's it's more the I think I think on the private sector, it's it's more the legislation that comes with sort of the LHA type tenants. But when you're doing it on a much bigger scale, you can you can 
you can take those operational losses into account and it, and it works well. But with the typical sort of mum and pop landlords, I think they've, they've started to shy away from that in I don't know, the past decade because it's almost more trouble than it's worth, but it's opened up huge opportunity. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, there's whatever it is, two million, you know, sort of new homes are required. And you look at the waiting list, right? A lot of these these sort of you know local authorities, and they're huge, right? There's sort of fifty thousand plus families are being transported two hundred miles away. So there's this huge demand. The problem is, because the government sort of fiddled around with that that sort of you know LHA rent, and then Universal Credit came in, so people took Universal Credit and paid it direct rather than going straight to landlords and what have you. It just made the institutional markets just nervous about investing. You know, I think that the 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 latest announcements around the fact they're going to try and make it a lot more more steady and sort of linked to sort of CPI plus will be better and give people a lot more confidence. So that's a that's an interesting point. And you mentioned obviously like inflation before. Do you think that with inflation, it's likely that private rents might go up at a faster rate than actually some of these social rents if they're linked to? Because often CPI doesn't go up as much as kind of the wage wages for renters do, and you've got to look at kind of what's the demographic of your typical private renter. Is there any danger of maybe some of those LHA rates falling behind and not increasing in proportion as much as some of the private rents? Maybe. I mean, there's there's a lot of protections right around in terms of planning and that type of sort of thing, which means that units can't be sort of moved necessarily in, in and out of the sector. You know. Private, so if you're creating new units as you're kind of you're hoping to do yeah, yeah i mean yeah I, mean, I think that you know private i guess sort of rental is is obviously going to be a little bit more fluctuating right depending on kind of the business cycle i mean if you look at rent as a proportion of of people's income versus the content it's staggering quite frankly you know in the sort of uk so i'm not sure whether it's but London's not that bad at the moment i mean typically before any crash it's above 60 percent in london and at the moment, I think it's about 53, whereas UK as a whole, it's about 30. But one of the problems is how they measure it, because they used to do it by individuals, or they used to do it by households, and now they started doing it by individuals, whereas households normally have more than one kind of contributor to the household income. So there's a few kind of inaccuracies with some of those stats, I think, that people need to be a little bit careful of. Yeah, I mean, you look at the, the sort of, you know, content of Europe, especially Western Europe, you're sub-25 in a lot of cases. So, you know, it becomes a, a large part of, of someone's income. But we, we, we're not really, we don't really invest in residential, largely because our cost of capital is, is so much greater that we need to make returns that you just can't do, right, in terms yeah. of a single resi asset and what have you. So whilst we look at it in regard to sort of LHA, we don't necessarily track it as, as, as much as, others might but yeah i think social social would if they can fix the investment in social and and make it easy to invest i mean you look at in order to own social housing you either have to be a housing association that's a charity or a registered provider right there are limited registered providers that are backed by private equity we own one of a handful in, in terms of oak housing which means that we can then put institutional money into the sector and we can own and manage it which I think is not necessarily a bad thing, but it just limits the amount of capital that can then reach the sector. I think there is a huge opportunity for public bodies, whether that's local authorities, NHS Foundation and Trust, in terms of key worker, and you know, everything from the fire and armed services and all that type of sort of thing, to actually look at um, the market and say, we actually need to step in here. And there is an opportunity. And I get budgets are stretched and what have you. But when you can borrow from the public markets at negative cost of capital, if you can be creative and you can invest into a positive cost of capital, then ultimately you know, you're not stretching your budget. You're, you're creating profit that you can feed back into frontline services. So I think it's win-win. Do you think, though, I mean, like as an example for all the bad things going on in China, one of the good things is they have a 25-year outlook on, on things like this. Whereas here it's very difficult to do that because the political landscape is based around four-year terms. And actually having that long-term view requires a bit of kind of uh, sort of bit of working together and things like that, which in, the reality is it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to happen. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't disagree with you at all. And I think that, that you know, the green sale and things like that and CAM and the lobbying has really damaged that sort of private and, and public sector interaction for the past year or so and I think that you know that was 
that was one bad apple. And I think that, you know, we kind of need to look through that. The private sector, generally speaking, you know, is is incredibly efficient in terms of the use of capital. And there's a lot that the public sector can learn from that. And I think that, you know, working in tandem is the way that we, we solve you know, a lot of our sort of problems in this country. Commenting on you know, four and, and 10 years and what have you. Yeah, I mean, there are obvious benefits and, and sort of pitfalls to that. But if you look at corporate America, right, it reports every every quarter. I think it's insane, quite frankly. You know, how can you put in place you know, long-term investments? And that is ultimately why I think that you know, private markets, um, generally speaking, outperform public because you can invest for a long time. You know, you look at a lot of our investments, right? We won't take a yield for three or four years because we're investing yep. capital into long-term growth opportunities. And then I guess when you look back and you, I don't know, look at it as an IRR over that, over that period, it's going to be better than if you were just looking at it short term, trying to get a gain out. So, absolutely, because it's you know you get compounding returns and you get operational leverage in terms of reinvesting the capital. So, I totally you know, understand why we sort of go about public markets. What have you? I think the quarterly reporting, I never really agree with, is, is the honest answer. I don't think it gives people enough time to invest longer term. I think it's short termism, which is obviously why we invest in, in private markets. But yeah, four and ten years, it's a difficult one. Absolutely. So what would you say at the moment is the biggest risk to your portfolio or even to any of your individual businesses? And what are you doing or putting in place to mitigate that risk? Well, COVID taught us a thing to about liquidity, that's for sure. You know, we were always pretty good at, at keeping cash reserves mm-hmm. um, and or liquidity options. But COVID blew that out of water, right? Now, and you're in... You're in a, the businesses and asset classes you're in are typically not very liquid at the best of times. Um, Certainly not, no. Um, you know, closures, I mean, you can imagine, right, closures from, we had zero holidays, we still had to do the development, you're still within your hold cycle and then what have you. You don't really know when it's going to exit. I mean, we all know what COVID happened, right? Care homes, obviously, we got hit pretty hard. We were just focused on to be honest, disease control at the time. You know, at that point, you're dealing with human lives rather than rather than sort of balance sheets. So you, it doesn't matter. You, you do what you have to, to to sort of keep the disease out. Sadly, we lost a number of our residents, um, which was which was pretty difficult. And social housing, you had a, a rent moratorium, you know, which meant that a sort of eviction moratorium, which meant you couldn't, you know, ultimately take into court. So everyone stopped paying your rents. So you were ultimately funding people to live, which you know is is. Norm, in normal case, absolutely fine. We own that business ourselves um, with sort of personal capital. And yeah, the, the Bank of Ben just sadly can't um, afford to pay for 500 people to live every month. So we got really stretched then. I think, you know, in terms of liquidity, there's always a balance between kind of using your liquidity to, to obviously reinvest versus keeping it for a rainy day. But I think we probably learned a few things there. Hi, everyone. Sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to quickly tell you about the property business retreat that I'm hosting with Adam Lawrence and Sue Sims between the 9th and the 16th of October. As you listen to the broadcast or see any of the posts that myself and Adam do, you'll know that we're fairly detail-orientated and the treat will be no different. It's centred around workshops that are specific to your personal property business and investments. It's not just a case of listening to people speak, there's a fair bit of work involved and we take a holistic look at the property business and highlight any potential risk areas, as well as making sure it's built on solid foundations from which to grow sustainably. It's for people with existing businesses or portfolios, and some of the workshops that we do include analysis of what is a good investment specific to you, strategic planning, tax structure and net returns, diversification, hedging or insuring, trends specific to location, use class and tenant type, where your property assets fit into your total investment portfolio and project management. You will leave with a very in-depth strategic plan to work from going forward and there will be progress updates every month for the following six months after the week away. It's a really fun week and if you are interested, please contact me, rod at incomethroughproperty.co.uk and you can find that email in the show notes. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Just out of interest, what would some of those tools be for liquidity? Obviously, you mentioned cash reserves. What would some of the other ones be? Yeah, I think that, you know, credit lines, obviously, in terms of, you know, having a a sort of decent RCF in place, having a a big brother investor like Angelo Gordon or a patron, rather than owning stuff on our own balance sheet, which perhaps would deliver 
decent returns, but it's, from a risk adjustment point of view, it's dangerous. I think there's a whole host of, of, of bits and pieces that you can you can do. So what would you be putting in place now then, realising from what's just happened? Definitely bolstering cash reserves. I think that, you know, having you know, credit facilities, I think is really important. Being able to kind of, you know, cross lever, I guess, some of our investments. You know, we have a lot of it personal as well. So, you know, actually, you know, the last couple of days, I've been speaking to a number of private banks and, you know, we're trying to find someone that can think a little bit difficult, differently. So, you know, if you look at high street banks, generally speaking, the computer says no. Tick box exercise, yeah. But the ability to create liquidity is kind of what we're looking for. So whether that's your investment portfolio, you know, HMO portfolio, commercial lending, etc. So we're just trying to find smarter banking relationships as well. Difficult now because people move jobs so much. So it's making relationships in, in those certain... I find certain some of those is, is quite difficult, but there's often new banks being created. So we've just had quite a relationship built with a new bank. And we're going to be one of their first customers for, for a site that we have refinancing that. And, and that's been great because we've actually had the opportunity to speak directly with them, build a relationship, kind of explain what we're doing. And if it was a tick box exercise with a high street, we wouldn't have even got past the first hurdle. So I agree with that. I agree with that. And they say, keep saying to me, what, what, they say, what, what's your, what's the, what's the first thing you want to achieve? Because we think about sort of moving you know, TMB capital and, and personal, it's all commingled and what have you. And I say, say, did you want an investment portfolio? And I kind of say, well, absolutely not. You know, I think the equities are so overpriced. There's no way we do that in the world, but maybe later. But so the first, the only thing we really want is liquidity provision, right? And it's the ability to, Access liquidity pretty quickly should we need it. And I don't think COVID's going to happen again, fingers crossed, like something else might and, and, and will. It's just being ready for it. I actually had an amazing um, trip about 18 months ago. And I was in Barbados. And I met Dermot Desmond. Uh, and you'll see, unbelievable. To chat. And he gave me a word of advice at the time, which has really stuck with me. And bear in mind, this is January 2020. And he said, he said, you're always going to go through a crash. He said, but just make sure you've got enough chips available so you can continue playing at the end of it. Mm-hmm. I thought there was actually really quite an interesting way of looking at things. And at the time, obviously, you know, we had 10 boom years and, and what have you. We probably left our cash reserves a little thin and that hurt us in COVID and what have you. But that really made a lot of sense from someone who's kind of sort of been there and, and, and done it and what have you. And do you kind of agree with then, I suppose, the old Warren Buffett approach of leveraging hard but having cash reserves in place versus actually having a lower leverage um, level and less cash reserves? Which would you prefer? I mean, it's a difficult one. I mean, broadly speaking, our thesis is high leverage is bad. Over 100% leverage is good. And we've done that a couple of times where we've actually we've acquired companies and we've actually financed more than the cost of the company. But generally our premise is low leverage. And look, if you need to lever really highly to make your returns work, it's probably not the right investment. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the market is, is right and you can, you can take some cash off the table early and still retain what we believe is a kind of residual lowly, lowly levered asset versus the, um, what we thought the sort of you know, pricing would be. So you know, we did a lot of long income transactions at the start. We split the freehold on leasehold, finance the residual on leasehold, et cetera. And that was good for us. But generally speaking, we, we, we like low leverage. Um, and we, yeah, we, 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 we very much think that if you can get a bit of better leverage or you can you know, reduce the, the rates and that type of sort of thing, then it's accretive to your strategy. But from an underwriting perspective, it has to work low leverage or you're just elevating that sort of risk profile of your investment too much. What advice would you give to um, people out there who are struggling to raise investment? Because obviously you, you've mentioned a few, a few different kind of things that you've done, like the Big Brother Investor 300 of Gordon, making partnerships, equity investment. What, what, what advice would you give to people who are trying to scale up and trying to raise investment and are finding it difficult? Well, look, I think that raising, this is, this is a bizarre thing to say, but raising large amounts of equity is easier than, than small amounts of equity. You know, if you're operating in that sort of 0 to 10 million space, it, it becomes 
really difficult because you're sort of high net worth and what have you. And the funds continue to get bigger and raise bigger funds and want to deploy more equity. So going to the market for 100 million is almost easier than, than sort of 10. But I think look, if, you, if you're sort of raising equity, you need a bit of luck, inevitably. You know, you need a decent track record, uh, at least in terms of kind of, you know, what, you, what you've done previously that is relevant. And it's really about building relationship. You know what this industry is like. It's all relationship driven. It's just about you know, doing what you say you're going to do and making sure that, you know, you kind of always sort of put your investors first and, and make sure you take your fiduciary responsibilities incredibly seriously. You know, if you're in it to make a quick buck, then don't bother. Um, if you're in for the for long-term relationships, the long haul, then that's exactly where you want to be, really. Brilliant. And then how would you approach or how would your imp- approach to investments or the underlying businesses change, if at all, if the capital you had to invest was one-tenth of what it is now? And also, same question for if it was 10 times the amount it is now. Well, it becomes difficult one-tenth because you can't afford the professional managers yeah. and that sort of institutional, I guess, Ruella that you can do sort of 100 million marks sort of plus, right? So we... we We'll put business intelligence or sort of BI into a lot of our platforms and drive data to make decisions or we'll hire decent managers and what have you. It would, it would fall a lot more on us, I guess, which which we're used to doing, obviously, and we've sort of talked about that already. But I think our approach would probably be take a lot more um, notice of, of what's going on, sort of day-to-day. I mean, you just you can't be over everything, but, yeah. but broadly speaking, you need to sort of back your team, but but we'd have to focus a lot more. And if it was 10 times the size, I don't know whether that makes it easier, if I'm honest with you. I mean, I, I haven't had the, the, the luxury of investing 10 times. I'd love to, don't get me wrong. But I think it makes it a little bit easier. You know, we, we focus on buying bills, which can be a bit bitty. They carry a bit more risk. You're using cash flow from one asset to finance the next and what have you. If you're buying at the sort of top end of the market, you can, I think you can probably expect lower returns, obviously, but you're building established businesses with you know, established clients in established sectors and what have you, and you're sort of tweaking around the edges. You're not doing that wholesale transformation and change necessarily that we'd be doing. So I hope one day we get there, and I'm hoping it's easier. I'm sure anyone listening to this that does invest 10 times the money will tell you that it's, <laughs> it's a lot more difficult, but sadly, I don't have the experience in doing so just yet. But... That's been really, really interesting, Ben. Thanks so much for coming along. And I know you've, you've been very busy of late. And congratulations on exiting one of your, one of your deals recently because I know it's been a brilliant result. And I know the listeners are going are gonna to love this. So thanks again for coming on. No worries. Pleasure. Thanks very much.